Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Thanks for tuning in once again. So nice to have you joining me. And we're going to get straight into it today. If you listened to the last episode, you'll know I spent at least a good two minutes doing some pre-episode fluff, you know, some some rambly kind of intro, a little bit of personal anecdote. Uh, but today, no such luxuries. We are firing up and into it from the get-go. So... Let's do it. In the last episode, we began a new series called In the Flesh. And it's all to do with the intersection of faith and spirituality with our sense of embodiment. And in particular, I talked last time, or I began to talk about the Christian tradition and the way it has the potential to shape quite negative views of the body, the physical body, the human body. The body is the site of sin and of limitation. And in this episode, I want to continue that conversation. Perhaps we're still diagnosing the problem, really. And so in this episode, I want to reflect on certain interpretations of holiness within religious tradition and how it can function to exacerbate this kind of challenge with the body and give rise to a kind of spiritual life or just a life in general that is in constant battle, a never-ending struggle with oneself, an exhausting kind of war against one's own flesh, one's own body. So that's what we're talking about. This is episode 18 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. The title of this episode is The Shame of Unholiness, which sounds either like a really intense podcast episode or the name of a Christian thrash metal band in the 80s, I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, similarly last week, I want to begin with a reflection on my own experience. And one of the things that I do as a reflective practice, or really as a spiritual practice, I guess, is to journal. And I don't always do it, it comes and goes a bit from my life, you know, but Um, One of the things I both love and hate about it is that it gives me the opportunity to go back and read my inner thoughts from years ago. And one of the things I find in my earlier journals, especially maybe from from life in my 20s, when I was a bit younger than I am now, uh, is how many apologies are in them. And, you know, maybe that just is partly because I'm a chronic apologizer at the best of times. Um, but it really does strike me, especially uh, in my words directed towards some kind of God figure. Uh, and and in particularly in this time, most of my journal entries were directed very directly towards God in some kind of way. And maybe that's changed a bit now. I think it probably has. Actually, it surprised me the other day when I was journaling and God actually uh, got mentioned. So, you know, shows how far I've come. Uh, interpret that how you will. <laughs> um, but one of the things that, that I notice you know, in these earlier entries is all of this language directed toward God and a lot of it containing uh, just this overwhelming sense of apologizing for myself. And apparently the sense I get about myself, and I remember remember this, but it's always interesting to reflect on your own experience, is that apparently, you know, this God that I was writing to was wanting a lot from me, that I was finding it really hard to deliver. There were apologies in there for all sorts of things. Apologies for not praying enough, of course, that's a a classic. Uh, Apologies for maybe not reading my Bible like I should. Apologies for not journaling often enough. So most journal entries begin with, sorry, I haven't journaled uh, recently. Um, Apologies for not showing the necessary devotion to God. Maybe apologies for not being as organized as I should have been. And and that meant then I wasn't a good leader or I wasn't a a really good example. Whatever that meant. Uh, Apologies for sleeping in again. 
that happened a bit. <laughs> I usually slept through my um, my morning prayer uh, session that I had booked for myself. Uh, apologies maybe for eating too much. Apologies for thinking dirty thoughts. Just so much to apologize for. So, you know, a typical journal entry started with sort of, generally started with, with I'm really sorry, I haven't done this in a while. I'm going to do better from now on. And then the general gist was, I'm sorry for, for various things. Thanks for forgiving me. I really want to be amazing in every way, but I'm sorry, I'm actually a terrible person. Uh, I'll try and be better from tomorrow <laughs> or, you know, maybe later today, depending on when I was writing the entry. So just lots of this kind of stuff around and around. And it's, it's an interesting thing to reflect on because in, in many respects, you know, I was in a religious tradition that was grounded in the idea of grace. I still am. You know, the, the Christian tradition is is grounded deeply in this idea of grace. And I probably have heard, lot. I had heard by this stage in my life, lots of talks about how you shouldn't live this way because God has forgiven you and God loves you and God is for you and be free. But the language, and it's interesting to think about this idea of grace, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that today. But one of the definitions we were given was that grace is the idea of undeserved favor. And that was sort of, that was told to us as, as good news. And from one perspective, it is. You know, look at this favor God has shown to you. But the strongly implied, maybe, it's, maybe it was the less often spoken undercurrent, was to remember it's undeserving. So it's undeserving favor, which is supposed to make it really awesome. And in one respect, I guess, if you're feeling pretty bad about yourself, that does make it awesome. You're like, oh man, even though I don't deserve it, I get God's blessing or God is okay with me. But from the other perspective... The, the emphasis here is to be reminded how undeserving you are all the time. You're undeserving. I was undeserving. So undeserving. <laughs> Which meant that every interaction with God was shaped by the sense of how undeserving I was. Now on the one hand, again, this, this can be, in fact, kind of a liberating idea. You can see it was for at least one of the early Christians, this guy, Paul, who writes a bunch of the New Testament texts. Now Paul... If he wasn't a murderer, he was he was kind of a murderer by association, or at least he was involved because you know, you know he was involved in rounding up Christians when when Jewish people were first converting to Christianity. He was violently against this, and he was present for the first martyring of of one of these Jewish men, Stephen, who had converted to Christianity, and um, and so he spent a number of years trying to stamp out this and endorsing what it seems like quite violent means to do so. And then, in a big twist to his own story, he becomes a Christian himself. He has this kind of mystical experience, pretty hard to describe, and then, for whatever reason, ends up deciding to follow this Christ figure. And so what you find is that Paul, as one of the writers of the New Testament, is profoundly shaped by this idea that he was undeserving of the grace that he had experienced. You can see it woven through all sorts of things that he wrote in the New Testament texts. And I think that can be a powerful idea. I think it really was for him, especially perhaps for people who have engaged in actions towards others that they feel a deep sense of shame or regret for, especially when these actions have deeply harmed other people. Um, and and maybe it's it's impossible to repair the damage that you've done. So this idea that there's a way back, that you can experience forgiveness and reconciliation even if you don't feel like you deserve it. Well, this this can be a moving and meaningful experience for people. Sometimes the problem is when we take that motif, which, as I say, is sometimes a 
appropriate and genuinely transformative for people and apply it to everyone, everywhere, all of the time. And then we load people up with this guilt, sometimes from a very young age. So you have a a five-year-old in Sunday school in a church being taught that they're undeserving of God's forgiveness because of their sin. Luckily, Jesus died for them, you know, which sort of gets them out of a tight spot, but that's a heavy load to put on a young child. But it's very common. It's part of the good news that so many good evangelical kids are taught. But I think it's missing a big part of what the New Testament texts are trying to say, and to be honest, it it can do real damage to people. Now, one of the other things that, that this Paul character goes out of his way to say is that we have a problem that's universal. You know, he says everybody is guilty and behaving in ways that harm ourselves and others. So then... Perhaps we can say, see, see, everybody's got this problem. Everybody is guilty. Ah. Uh, but it's important, again, to remember the context in which Paul is saying this kind of thing. He's talking to communities who are racked with division because they've split themselves into groups and they're blaming each other within the community for their problems. And so his way of kind of dealing with this is to say, essentially, hey, you're all as bad as each other. Everybody's got a problem here. Which, once again, is kind of a profound insight in its own way. The violence and hatred that we often see in others is is often a reflection of the kind of prejudice and hatred and, and the stuff that we store up in our own hearts. It's this universal problem. It's not just their problem on the other side, it's our problem too. But again, taken the wrong way and applied indiscriminately to everyone who's just trying to make their way in the world, what this way of talking about when, when done badly it can do is load people up with this deep sense of lack and of shame and of guilt and of this apologetic way of being in the world that I experienced. We end up being defined by, I'm sorry, I'm undeserving, I'm unworthy, and life is always this battle, this struggle against yourself, constantly being waged. Now, this kind of battle with oneself, it's it's not limited to Christianity. You see it in a lot of ancient uh, philosophical texts and reflections um, and a lot of religious practices, but it's, and it's not even limited to religion itself. It seems that human beings are, are quite good at creating all sorts of ways to be disappointed with ourselves. But I think what we can notice is that spirituality can either serve to intensify and capitalize on that feeling, feeding the disappointment and regret and shame, or spirituality can help undo this way of seeing the world and, and God and ourselves. And the evidence tells us that the second option is usually the path to lasting transformation, that the second form of spirituality that helps us to undo this way of seeing ourselves in the world can in fact be quite uh, transformative and healthy and and better for us than no spirituality at all. Um, The flip side of that is that the problematic versions of spirituality that feed the shame and self-hatred can be deeply and profoundly damaging. Now, once again, the language of struggle and battle with oneself, well, it can lead to profound personal change if the circumstances are right. Sometimes the language of battling with oneself can be a motivating force for some people. Some people accomplish amazing things when they're driven by this kind of internal battle. But in many situations, it can also lead to a general underlying struggle to accept oneself, to come to terms with who we are and who we aren't. And what you actually find is that sometimes the most driven people who seem to be able to triumph in this battle over themselves are wrestling with a deep sense and struggle to accept themselves under the surface. In some more intense cases, this can lead to a profound self-loathing or to a self-hatred, even to a disgust with oneself, which might sound like really strong language, you know. 
Um, but actually, just the other day, I was facilitating a group conversation in which someone had said that they were disgusted with themselves. And they weren't saying that about something they'd done that was particularly terrible. They were just disgusted at themselves for not being better at a particular spiritual practice. They thought they should be further along than they were. And they used this language of disgust to describe it. And that's strong language. It tells you something of what can be going on inside for people. So at this point then in the conversation, I want to talk about two terms in the biblical text that get used in relation to this way of being, maybe to help shape up why it is that Christians in particular uh, tend to think in these kinds of ways, this kind of battling, struggling mentality. So these two terms in the biblical text I want to use are holiness and the flesh. Holiness is a curious word. It gets used in the Jewish and Christian scriptures a lot. God is holy. And the people are supposed to be holy too. That's the general idea. But what is it to be holy? I guess that's the big question. Well, there's a sense in the initial meaning of the word that it's, it's kind of a distinct way of being. Technically, the Hebrew word kodesh conveys a sense of apartness or distinction or difference. It's a way of describing God that, that wasn't really about an aspect of the divine in particular other than to say that God was other. God was distinct. God was separate. God was sacred. And in early religion in ancient Israel, it seems that holiness then became about a way of talking about and revering the sacredness of God. And so there were all of these rules to kind of emphasize the otherness and sacredness of the divine. So, you know, they set up all of these elaborate practices, um, not unlike some nations surrounding them at the time uh, in relation to their gods, but uh, set up all of these elaborate rituals and practices and the priesthood to help you navigate how you might interact with a God who was this distinct and other and sacred and holy. Um, you know, it even got to the point where maybe the priest who was going into, there was, there was a, a, initially a tabernacle, that gets, which is kind of a, a big tent really, uh, which later on gets turned into a temple when they have a kingdom and a nation and a king and so on. And in the middle of the tabernacle and the temple, there's this place they call the Holy of Holies. And it was so sacred because this was where the holy place was and where the holy God was located. Uh, and the priest, only the priest, could go in there and only once a year. All of these rituals and rules and practices trying to emphasize this otherness to God and that this otherness was so distinct and separate. And the language given to that is this idea of holiness. And then over time, what you see is this idea that somehow they, as the people of this God, were also to be holy, to become distinct or set apart or sacred, just as God is. And so in these early uh, Hebrew communities in the ancient Near East, there are all sorts of rules and regulations then about how to define this kind of holiness, not just for God then, but now for the people. So there were rules about how to treat your neighbor and how to treat a foreigner and how to treat the poor. And some of these seem obviously quite helpful. And at times even progressive for people living in the ancient world. And others appear very regressive and, and horrible and weird and strange and perhaps offensive to us now. But at the time, they were this particular attempt to define this sense of distinctiveness. And this impacted on all sorts of aspects of life. Rules about the things people should eat and not eat. Uh, fabrics you shouldn't put together when you wear them. Um, certain sexual practices, tattooing the skin, eating shellfish, you know, just all of these ways of defining holiness and distinction and set-apartness. 
uh, to try and reflect a God who they saw as somehow being different, total otherness. Now, what happens over time is that there are Jewish prophets who emerge and critique some of these ways of understanding holiness. So they suggest that if we're going to try and be holy like God is holy, which is you know, one of these key holiness phrases, then what sets God apart, if we're going to think about what makes God holy, is the way God upholds peace, the way that God is interested in justice for the oppressed and care for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the stranger. So these prophets that begin to emerge keep trying to say, hey, you've made holiness about all of this random stuff and about blood and sacrificing animals and and ritual and and fabric. But perhaps the divine holy way of being in the world is to in fact treat others with justice and with kindness and with acceptance. Perhaps this in fact itself is the way of holiness because no one else is really doing this. And of course, this then, much later on, is the tradition that Jesus enters into. And when he starts doing his thing in the first century, this kind of conversation remains a hot topic, you know. What is it that makes people holy? And you have different teachers who have whole different traditions about the things that you should do and shouldn't do in order to be a holy person. And there are religious leaders then that define holiness for people via all of these various technical laws and certain distinctive rituals and protocols. So many of these things that it's actually impossible to keep up. And so you have uh, them demanding that people be holy, but then making holiness this entirely impossible task. Now, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, which is a little talk Jesus gave, uh, the writer of Matthew's Gospel records it as, as Jesus' first chat. That seems to be a collection of sayings, really, but, but we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And I mentioned it a couple of times throughout the In The Shift podcast so far, this idea that uh, Jesus does talk about perfection, but the kind of perfection he talks about when he talks about God being perfect and then about what it means for us to be perfect. Well, this is related to love. And not just a loving our friends, but somehow learning what it is to love all of humanity, all of humankind, and even Jesus wants to push it as far as even our enemies. So if we're going to talk about holiness in the Jesus tradition, I think, That's one of the best ways to talk about it. Now, Jesus keeps getting annoyed at religious people of various kinds, people who have utypically defined holiness in ways that center themselves and exclude others. And that's what we tend to do with a system like this. We we take it and we work the system so that it somehow puts us at the center and others on the outside. People who keep saying that they get to define holiness by all of these particular little laws and behaviors meanwhile ignoring matters of justice and mercy and how we treat those who are on the margins. So ultimately, the language of holiness in the Jesus tradition is about the way we live in the world, the way we treat each other, the way we allow ourselves to be shaped by love and by service of others, which, you know, is actually kind of beautiful. Now, the challenge, perhaps for many religious folk today, is that we're tempted to see things much more like some of those ancient views of holiness even if it looks a bit different now than it did then. Uh, And perhaps that's the temptation of humankind, to be able to categorize things and list things and draw lines in the sand and and figure out what we have to do in order to be the in and the holy and the right and the pure. You know, and so even though we can look back at, let's say, the ancient Israel and all of their myriad of laws and say, well, that seems all a bit weird and problematic and outdated and old-fashioned, But we have a tendency to do the same kind of thing too. We take a concept like holiness and turn it into a word that's used to manage people's particular behavior in ways 
that aren't really related to the important stuff. And then attach feelings of shame and guilt and anxiety to them. So much so that a word like holiness, to be honest, is, is pretty much ruined. I'm finding it honest, I'm genuinely finding it difficult to even use it so often in this episode because the word itself carries such heavy weight for me, even though I've gone through a process of redefining it and re-understanding it. It's still just because of, I guess, the neural pathways that form in you. Um, it still carries a heavy weight to the word. So as I say, the kind of Christianity I've experienced in the past has been shaped quite a bit by that kind of concept of holiness. Uh, I grew up in the Pentecostal kind of church, you know, and that has its roots in a real holiness movement in the 19th and early 20th century. And this kind of holiness movement, in some sense, was about this internal transformation, but over time become very much about uh, managing external uh, cultural parameters. And so holiness went hand in hand with a certain set of cultural assumptions about the way things were supposed to be. You know, so I remember when I was 13 years old, I think that's what I was, and uh, and I got lines, uh, there was this thing called steps. Now, this was something you did to your hair in the 90s. And you would shave these kind of lines into the side of your head. And I thought that was pretty cool. And so I asked the hairdresser if they could put steps in my hair, which they did. And then I turned up to church on Sunday, uh, as, as, as you should, of course, good Christian boy that I was, uh, and, and somebody sat me down. A lady in the church sat me down and she said, you know, the Bible says that you should not shave the sign of your head. You have uh, damaged your relationship with God uh, and you need to do something about it. I mean, what do I do? Just let it grow back and in the meantime, plead with God for, to forgive me or something. Now, I, to be honest, I thought it was a bit silly, but fortunately I did. It's possible that that kind of conversation could have uh, gone quite badly. Uh, on another occasion, same church, actually, uh, I, <laughs> uh, there's this thing called, some traditions call it the Eucharist, some call it communion. Uh, you're probably familiar with it, even if you haven't been in and around church very much, which is the taking of the bread and the wine, which symbolize the, the body and the blood of Jesus, symbolizing his, the giving of his life, you know? And uh, it's the central, very sacred tradition and some churches treat it um, so sacredly that you know the priest has to priest has to finish all of the food, all of the the bread and wine, uh, because it's been it's been made holy, it's been set apart as sacred. Other traditions have a much more relaxed attitude towards it. Anyway, we were one of those churches had a more relaxed attitude towards it. Uh, it's possible that I may have been out in the kitchen after the church service finishing off some of the uh, delicious white bread from, from the communion table. And it's possible that an elderly gentleman discovered me with a mouthful of white bread from the communion table uh, and said, you have brought a curse down upon yourself. You must go to the pastor and plead with him that God might forgive you. Good times, good times. I also think about in my tradition, uh, you know, the television used to be called the Hellevision. Um, by some people, kind of amusingly, but also like, seriously though, you shouldn't be watching too much of it. Uh, there were even people for whom dancing was seen as bad, certain kinds of music, you know. I had a friend when I was at university, 
who, compelled by God that they shouldn't be listening to this uh, secular non-Christian music, destroyed all their CDs. He took them all out and and burnt them and, and shot them to pieces with a slug gun, a BB gun type thing. Then, of course, over the next six months, he relaxed a bit and he had to rebuy them all. And then he had another moment of conviction and had to burn them all again. He went around and around that little trip a few times, spent a lot of money. I guess it was good for the music companies. So all of this circles back around to the kind of battle and struggle that I talked about earlier. Because these are kind of, some of these are slightly silly stories, but what they engender within you is the sense of being in a constant struggle to manage your external behaviours. And then this gets even more complicated when we think about our internal worlds, our thoughts, our desires. Because all of these then can also damage our holiness, but they can damage our holiness in ways that other people can't see and that you can't easily fix. And so even if you're managing the outside kind of well, then the internal sense of shame can be quite potent. And so we have to battle harder and struggle harder in order to strive for the purity and holiness that we're looking for. So what does all of this have to do with the body? Well, One of the ways many Christians talk about this kind of battle, this struggle, is to talk about struggling against the flesh. Now the flesh, and the reason this kind of language, if if you're not from the Christian tradition, you might think that just sounds crazy. But it's this phrase that's used in the New Testament, and once again it's our old mate mate Paul, uh, and he talks about not living according to the flesh, but living according to the Spirit. Now as a good first century Jewish thinker, Paul is using a metaphor for a particular way of living in the world. He's talking about, when he talks about living by the flesh or living by the spirit, elsewhere he talks about the old man or the new man. Uh, Somewhere else he talks about living in the domain of darkness or the kingdom of light. Uh, And they're all metaphors for a similar kind of idea. How How are we living in the world? Now, to be honest, they are quite binary. I find them quite black and white and in or out or this or that. And so they're a bit all or nothing in the way that they portray things. And I wonder if for Paul this is shaped by his own particularly radical and transformative life change that he's experienced. He's gone from one thing to an entirely different thing. And so it shapes this very kind of binary, dualistic language in some of the ways of speaking. But what he didn't mean when he said in the uh, living by the flesh was he was not talking about his physical body. But what the Christian traditionist, he was using it as a metaphor for, for a way of living in the world. He's using it metaphorically. But what the Christian tradition has done with it is taken this metaphor of not wanting to live by the flesh or the desires of the flesh or the sins of the flesh and and, and Christians have used this in this kind of battle and struggle imagery directed toward the body. And then perhaps because so much of both the external and internal behavior and thought management system that we've developed is directed toward the body, this emphasis then really fits within this kind of framework and this can sometimes turn into something pretty toxic for people. I remember it must have been, it was probably a couple of years ago now. Uh, there is a, what's the best way to describe him? There is a, a preacher slash sort of the, the, theologian uh, by the name of John Piper, uh, who, who is based in North America. I apologize if you're a Piper fan, and I'm about to say something about him that I, I struggled with. Um, I don't really apologize. See, apologizing. There I go again. Just getting in early with a good old apology. I take it back. <laughs> uh, this is all part of my journey of transformation, guys. You're just along for the ride. Um, anyway, he has this kind of series where people write him 
pastoral questions and he gives them pastoral advice and he posts little videos and and they write little transcripts of these videos and post them up for people to read. And somebody wrote in talking about an eating disorder that they were struggling with and how they had been taught to hate their body from a young age and, and what to do about that because they had this eating disorder. Now, Piper's response to this was deeply problematic and portrays some of this kind of rhetoric that I guess I'm, I'm suggesting is is uh, needs to be critiqued. He, he said this, I want to quote a couple of things that he says. I wonder if it might be worth considering that there's a good hatred of the body and a bad hatred of the body. And he goes on to say, my question is, have you ever asked, instead of saying, I should stop hating my body, maybe I should say, I should start hating my body in the right way. I should start hating my body because it tempts me to sin. Then elsewhere he says, the body has become the base of operations for much enemy activity and it has become complicit in that attack of the evil one on us. Paul knows it, he's talking here about our old mate Paul, and he hates that aspect of the body. He will not let the body rule him or destroy him. So, there's, man, there's so many things I would want to say to that, and, and perhaps John Piper is kind of low-hanging fruit in this sense because he says some things that clearly I'm on a different page to. But, but I hope that you can see in that that there's something deeply toxic about this way of seeing the body. It totally exacerbates the problem in this particular case that that person and anyone else in a similar situation who trusts John Piper is, is reading is reading this. This totally exacerbates the problem enhances the level of damage that could be done here. And there is abundant evidence to support the fact that this is not the kind of response that leads to healthy human flourishing for someone in that kind of situation, or in fact, for anybody, really. And as I said before, this way of thinking is in fact not a good reading of Paul or of the New Testament text at all, and that's not what is meant by the flesh in the New Testament text. We're not supposed to wage a war of hatred against our own bodies, because we are our own bodies. Where do you think... Your, your mind and your memories and your whole sense of being is found. It's in your body. We are embodied creatures. And so this is a harmful and damaging belief and can contribute so strongly to this kind of toxic, self-hating, self-loathing way of thinking about ourselves. And I think it leads us in some very unhelpful directions. So what do we do with all and And, and I'm not picking on John Piper specifically because I have a problem with him as much as I do with all of the tradition that is represented by those things that he said. So what do we do with this? At this stage, perhaps I'm trying to identify some of the problems and where they come from before we go on to look at some healthier ways of being. But I want to make a couple of comments and kind of conclusion. It is not biblical or Christian to hate your body. The language of holiness, the language of the flesh, Both of these have been used to justify this very negative attitude towards oneself and one's own body, but that's a distortion of a religious and spiritual tradition tradition like Christianity, even though there have been lots of ways in in which that has become a primary message for people within uh, the tradition. That version of Christianity can be genuinely toxic and harmful and can contribute to a deeply unhealthy way of being in the world. And so instead, faith and spirituality can and should offer us ways to connect with our sense of embodiment. Many of the spiritual practices themselves at their heart are about taking us into connection with our bodies. Just on the weekend, I was with a group of people walking a prayer labyrinth. And a prayer labyrinth is 
it's laid out like a, a labyrinth, not not a maze where you can get stuck in a dead end because that would be sad and depressing, but a labyrinth which curls its way around to a centre and you can walk around it. And as you do, reflect on whatever you like really, but reflect on where you're up to in life and what's going on for you and where a sense of the divine or the sacred might be found for you in the midst of that. Uh, and you walk to the centre and then you walk back out. And this was a deeply embodied experience. And it was beautiful and challenging and invitational and helped me to connect with myself, not just on an intellectual level, but in an embodied sense in my whole self. And my sense, my belief is that that kind of spiritual practice can become genuinely meaningful for us instead of turning us against ourselves and entering into this battle against our own physical bodies, we learn to inhabit them in healthy ways. So next time on In The Shift, we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to talk a bit more about the language of purity and how that might be helpful or harmful to us in our journey of faith and life and spirituality, self-understanding. Thanks again to Reese Michelle, for, for, for sort of zhuzhing the sound on this whole podcast situation. I'll be back next time on In The Shift.